FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. Glad to have you all with us for another edition of Political Rewind. It's Wednesday, Wednesday, February 24th. By the way, uh, I was reminded in a, a message that I got from uh, someone this morning who asked not to be named that today would have been Zell Miller's 89th birthday, the former governor and United States senator of Georgia who had as much impact on the direction of Georgia during his tenure, particularly in two terms as governor, as any political leader in the lifetimes of most people uh, in the state of Georgia today. So um, Zell Miller, uh, who passed away a number of years ago, would have turned 89 uh, today. Uh, We have a lot to talk about on the show today. Excuse me. Um, State legislature is now just... I think overwhelmed with bills that would change how Georgians vote is not an unfair way of describing what's going on. The state Senate yesterday passed a measure that many people consider to be really the most moderate of a lot of what's being proposed. It would require some form of ID, photo ID, or driver's license or whatever for people to vote absentee. But there are much more draconian measures still to come. We're going to talk a bit about all of that today. Um, And uh, David Perdue yesterday announced that despite the fact that just a week or so ago, uh, uh, people associated with him filed the legal paperwork that would have paved the way for him to enter the race against Raphael Warnock in 2022, he will take a pass on that race. Remember that Warnock is filling the last two years of the seat that had been occupied by Johnny Isaacson, which is why he runs for a full term of six years uh, next year. Uh, And as I introduce our panel of all journalists from across the state of Georgia today, I do want to make note that Greg Bluestein, AJC political reporter who is with us on Wednesdays, said from the very start that there was no way David Perdue was getting into this U.S. Senate race. You are so smart, Bluestein. Yeah, well, it just didn't seem like it fit. He didn't seem to relish the campaign trail last year. That's probably an understatement. Um, he uh, has a lot going for him in retirement, to say the least. And uh, it's going to be a really brutal battle. And um, the people around him seem very caught off guard um, by any talk of him Running, there are some people who said that he was, you know, he was leaning towards it, but others who knew him really well um, were saying, uh, kind of, don't buy it. Um, and I think the biggest surprise, though, is that uh, it took him such a short time to to formally yeah. announce he's not going to run. <laughs> right? I thought he thought yeah, he should and- drag out for a couple more weeks. Yeah, and I must say that a week ago on the show, you told us that you didn't imagine he was going to make the race. So I just give credit where credit is due. We'll talk more about what Purdue's decision not to run means as Republicans start looking at the 2022 contest with uh, with Greg and our other panelists. We're also joined, I'm very happy to say, by the host of GPB TV's Lawmakers, which you can see at 7 o'clock on the statewide GPB television Network every night when the uh, legislature is in session. Donna Lowry. Donna, how are you holding up in the middle of this year? Now you've passed the halfway point of this yeah. week, right? You passed day 20. 
Yeah, we're past day 20. We're on the, the, the end of this, the, like, going down the hill. But in terms of what's going on there, there's a, it feels like it's ramping up because it's been kind of yeah. slow until this, these last few weeks. And now these bills are coming fast and furious and probably crossover day next week. So, yeah, there's a lot going on. So it, there's a lot of energy. Um, and I love that. I, uh, you just mentioned crossover day. And I think it would be great if you clarify something that came up in okay. our show the other day. Typically, it, it it used to be traditionally the crossover day was an established day on the calendar, but they've they're now more flexible about crossover day. Is that correct? Yeah, they're they're flexible and and to a certain degree, like it used to be like to between the twenty fifth and the twenty eighth day. The Senate said early on in this session that it would be the twenty seventh day. Uh, I talked to a lawmaker who was on the show last night who seems pretty um, determined. He. He seems to believe that it definitely will be the 27th. Where that 27th day will fall next week is still up in the air. It could be, you know, because we're going to have 26th day on Monday. But the 20, they could take a couple days off. The 20, so the crossover could be somewhere within the week, which makes it tough for us to know in terms of a show. But uh, keeps us on our toes. So uh, just to, to make it clear, th- there is some inside baseball about crossover day. But on the other hand, the reason it matters for our listeners is that is presumably the final day that a bill can be passed in one body and then still be considered for passage in the same session uh, by the other body. Although we know there are tricks that allow that uh, uh, to uh, be uh, overcome as well. Um, We're also joined today by Adam Van Brimmer. He, of course, is the editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News. Adam, how are things down in Savannah? Today is a watershed day, Bill. For the first time since March the 12th, 2020, I dropped two kids off at school this morning. Wow. How are you feeling? The the house is quiet. Um, It's just me and we have a... (laughs) Abbott, who I think is very confused by the fact that he doesn't have two teenagers to entertain him throughout the day, and uh, it's it's a very good feeling. Uh, well, you already anticipated my question. Any anxiety around this? No, no. I think they were both excited to go back to school, and and I'm excited too. We just got to make sure that my wife or I remember to pick them up this afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> Well, congratulations. Uh, that gives me an opportunity to say that tomorrow we're going to be talking uh, with Maureen Downey, uh, the AJC education writer, and uh, a couple of other experts on Georgia schools who are going to talk about where we stand in getting kids back to school, some of the apprehensions parents have, some of the issues that are still being confronted. We'll do that in tomorrow's show. We're also joined today by the president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, Renee Alegria. Renee, it's great to have you back with us today. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you very much for having me, as always. You know, uh, as we were kind of chatting before the show start, started, the, the sun's out. Spring seems to be approaching. People are optimistic. It's the new year. <laughs> what, what are you going to do, uh, right? Uh, oh, I, I love the uh, positive note you're bringing to the show today. Greg Bluestein, so the state Senate yesterday passed the bill that would require some form of photo ID or other or a driver's license number or whatever. And, and as I said in uh, setting up the conversation, in many ways, the measures passed in the Senate yesterday are uh, the more moderate measures that 
people on both sides, I, I think Democrats have been fighting all these election changes, but these are, this has got the support of Jeff Duncan, who opposes some of the more stringent changes. So talk to us a little about what passed yesterday. Yeah, and you're right. Um, it, comparatively, these are some of the more moderate of the, I, there's now 70 bills by my colleague Mark Nisi's count. So a tremendous number of elections bills um, pending in the legislature. And this was the package promoted by Jeff Duncan. It was overall uh, the four bills. Most of them were, were more bipartisan. This voter ID bill, this photo ID bill, um, was largely passed along party lines. I think there was one Democrat who crossed over um, to support it. Um, but it, you're right, it has strong support among Republican majority in both legislative chambers. And the AJC poll showed that a majority of Georgia voters support some form of photo ID when it comes to casting absentee ballots. Democrats, though, say it would create a burden for Georgia voters who lack a driver's license or access to some sort of copy machine needed to submit a photo ID if, if, if the restrictions, if the, uh, the legislation ends up requiring that. Uh, Donna, I, I got an email from one of our regular listeners who is a bit confused by some of the language in an article she read about this this morning, um, which uh, quoted one of the legislators who was uh, working on this bill as saying, well, most people in the state have already got their photo ID submitted in some way or another. There's no place where these records are stored. People are going to have to either photocopy a driver's license and send it. What it really means is that only 3% of people, uh, this according to the, to the senator who made this statement, uh, don't have some form of ID they can submit. Isn't that what it's really about? That's right. And, and that's the, the big concern right now is that, um, that, mo that, you know, so most people do have some kind of ID. So, so that's not the problem. The big thing is making sure that everyone who does have a photo ID is able to have access to a copier or some kind of way of making sure that their, um, their ID is sent in with those ballots. So that's the, that's the major thing here. But there, there are a lot of people who are okay with this one. I mean, I think if things stopped with just this one, everyone uh, would be okay. As uh, Greg mentioned, there's a lot of support, a lot of people who are in support of some kind of ID, but uh, there's a lot more to come. And, you know, the, um, the bill that came out last late yesterday, they won 241 from State Senator Mike Dugan, 25 pages long, very extensive. I mean, this was after a day of the Senate debating four major bills. He comes up with his. So, um, and then to hear Greg say there are 70 out there, there's, there's a, a lot that's going to be taking place in the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, the, how, the, the, the House has a 48-page bill with changes to election laws that they're looking at as well. Uh, Renee, how does a photo ID uh, law, assuming this uh, passes and is signed by the governor, how does this make an impact on people in the Hispanic community um, in, in uh, Georgia, many of whom I assume are not driving uh, to, I mean, you've got different kinds of Hispanic voters. It's not a monolithic uh, group. Let's be clear about that. But I assume that there's a disproportionate number of people who may not have uh, driver's licenses or even photo IDs of some sort. Listen, it, it's, it's, it doesn't seem like a lot, but it, it really is. I, you know, not voting on Sunday, inclusion of an ID, making a photocopy. I mean, these are the little hurdles that when you put them in front of voters, 
it just makes it a pain in the butt to get around to vote. Um, and any hurdle hinders voter participation. So for, for the Hispanic community, I mean, these are just examples of a system that is attempting to implement voter suppression and disenfranchisement out there. And, and you know, like, like everyone has already discussed the 70 bills out there, where does it stop? Where is it going to stop? It's a, it's a slippery slope, you know? <clears throat> you pass one small bill about having to photocopy your ID, um, and what's next? So, you know, I mean, the, the Hispanic community, I don't think is, is, uh, uh, is, is focusedly affected by this in so much so as everyone takes a look at this and thinks, okay, now what? Adam, weigh in. Yeah, in talking to our delegate members down here, they've been all the way going back to the biennial when this first really came, came up. Uh, they've been in favor of the, the driver's license ID number. Uh, I think at least on the House side, that's where they've all been. And let's remember that we all have to put that a state ID number on the absentee ballot request form. So it's not, I, to me, it's not any kind of really hardship to, to have to scribble that on when you sign, when you sign to, to mail the ballot in. I think that's a, a more of a common sense solution. And I think that that's really where a good portion uh, of uh, at least the the folks I've talked to, the Republicans I've talked to in the legislature, that's where they'd rather land. Uh, but as we know that back in December, there was there was a fringe of people who really were, quite frankly, maybe wanted to, to overturn the election results. Uh, and once that failed, they were looking for whatever the next step was. And for them, it was to really tighten these voting laws and absentee ballots. And I think the best case scenario for everybody is, is if this bill gets through that basically says the only change we're going to do to absentee ballots is to put your ID number on the ballot when you send it in. If that's where we land, I think most Georgians will be, uh, you know, a sigh of relief, to say the least. Greg, uh, the headline on uh, the AJC's jolt, which you are a contributor to every morning, by the way, people can get it at AJC.com, uh, is why Georgia elections may never be the same. And because you are a contributor to it, uh, I assume that uh, you're well aware of why that headline, uh, what that headline actually means. Um, so with that in mind, let's start a conversation about the, some of these other measures and bring everybody else in as well. Uh, Donna mentioned uh, Mike Dugan's Senate Bill 241. Uh, here are just some of the things that that bill would do. It would repeal no excuse absentee voting for most Georgians. It would require a witness signature from some of those who meet those the few exceptions along with a photocopy of the ID. It would limit the locations of early voting sites. It would restrict mobile voting buses like those that were used in Fulton County, uh, requiring the polling places be in buildings. It would grant the legislature new powers to review emergency voting rules, such as ballot drop boxes cleared by state officials during the pandemic. Um, and those are just in that Senate bill. There's even more in the House bill, which uh, was uh, dropped and which actually could be acted on at some point uh, in the next in the day uh, ahead. So, uh Greg, comment about first about the Dugan bill. I noticed that Kathy Cox, the former Secretary of State, 
said that one of the reasons back in 2005 the legislature agreed to no excuse absentee balloting was before when there were restrictions how could you how could any authority any election authority determine whether someone had a real excuse for having to cast an absentee ballot rather than an in-person ballot but commented all of that yeah, it puts the government in a, in a very difficult situation, state officials having to vet whether or not people had disabilities, whether or not people had, had legitimate excuses to vote by mail. And that's why Republicans and Democrats came together um, to support the regime we have now. And look, the big question is how much of this is saber rattling by, by Republican <laughs> officials who want to go um, go out red meat to conservatives back home who who some of them believed in President Trump's falsehoods about systemic voting fraud? And how much of this um, is is them legitimately hoping to pass something um, onerous by the end of the session? Um, right now, um, you've got, you've kind of got a mix of this. Uh, I think that um, I think that part of the strategy is go go more restrictive at first, and then start rolling it back so that the end package seems like it's somewhat of a compromise, even though many critics will still raise um, raise all sorts of concerns about it. Um, but we've had this debate before where we talked about, let's say, with abortion. Oh, you know, they'll end up they'll end up rolling those restrictions back when they didn't. And the governor ended up getting on board and Speaker Ralston ended up getting on board. All these people at first who were very lukewarm about passing the nation's strictest abortion limits ended up doing exactly that. So that's why that's why we've been paying such close attention to these subcommittee hearings and committee here. Her bill passes will end up getting um, written, compromised upon 30 minutes or so before Signe die uh, in some conference committee. Uh, this won't be something that will have days and days and days of the final bill will not have days and days of debate, although all sorts of provisions of it will. Um, but I think a lot of these Republican members have to show to their, for better or for worse, have, feel like they have to show back to the constituents at home that they're doing something to crack, to, to appease uh, President Trump supporters. Donna, you talk to a lot of legislators on lawmakers. Are are they talking quietly? Maybe they're not saying it on the air, but are they saying quietly, yeah, we're going to compromise this? Bluestein have a point here that what they're doing is going as far out as they can to please their right-wing base, but they'll come back a little bit toward a more uh, a hospitable position on some of these measures? Yeah, I'm getting that impression from a few of them. It's interesting when they when we when I try to engage them on the conversation with this, the the few that I have have kind of pushed it off that you know we'll we'll work out something. Uh, so I really do think this there's this blizzard of 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 uh, elections reform bills that they're throwing out there. Uh, I agree that they, we're going to see them whittled down, and then then just a few will rise. Um, and then that whole idea of saber rattling, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely a part of all of this, just to to, to show that there there is some concern out there. Um, on the other side, you know, there are the people who are very worried about this, uh, and they are hoping that if anything gets through, that they really disagree with it is a really major challenge. That there will be a challenge in the courts. And so in, in the sense that with the heartbeat bill, that, that was a lot of the feeling there. Like, if nothing else, we still have the court system. They're really hoping that that'll happen. I will tell you that I'm, I'm hearing a whole lot of people very upset about um, the, the bill that focuses on getting rid of the voting on Sunday in souls to the polls, which seems very much directed at the black community in particular. And 
um, people who are just uh, don't understand, uh, as one person said, that, you know, you can um, now drink. Alcohol is permitted on Sunday, but you wouldn't be able to vote. Uh, and that just seems unfair. So there are people who are just waiting to see where all of this is going to land. And as we mentioned earlier, we're on the end of the session here. So we'll we'll start seeing some, how um, how some of this will stand up. I'm glad you picked up on the Sunday voting bill because I want to talk a bit more about that. Um, Adam and then Renee, um, there are, you know, Democrats are saying that a lot of these measures are efforts at voter suppression. Uh, Republicans say, no, no, it's about voter integrity. It's about making sure that Georgians have faith in their elections. But an attempt to stop Sunday voting, which as Donna points out, has been a souls to the polls day where black churches in the state have organized to get their voters to the polls, um, why create some sense that there is something pernicious about trying to maximize the number of people who turn out to vote, black or white? Uh, Bill, I want to let Renee handle that before me, uh, just because we don't have early voting on Sundays here. And so it's, it doesn't apply to us, but after Renee's done, I want to circle back on something that Donna was talking about. Renee? Sure. sure. Well, listen, again, I think that this is just another example of the small hurdles that just make it hard for people with very busy lives, with families living through what we've lived through in the last year to not vote. Um, and I, I think that we, we're we at a crossroads right now, I think, in, in, in Georgia. And I think we're, we're you know, we, we've been at many crossroads in Georgia's history, in, in recent history, given the state is in such flux. What kind of Georgia are we building if we're making it difficult for voters to vote? Um, we, have, we have gained national attention with voter turnout, with being... Uh, you know, a, 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 a state where in which we we foster the kind of civic engagement that we're seeing with your average citizen. And why why hinder that progress is here? Uh, it's 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 really an interesting time. Adam. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Like I said, I wanted to circle back to what Donald was talking about and talking to some lawmakers. And that's that. A couple of weeks ago when the Senate rolled out their slew of, of initial bills on the voting reforms, I wrote a column basically saying, you know, this is this is voter suppression. This is the definition of voter suppression. And I got a uh, – I guess you would call it irate because the person doesn't get irate, so he had an edge to his voice. So it was – to me it was irate, one of our state senators, who basically said, hey, you know – you're you're being divisive. You're you're being divisive here. You're trying to divide us. Uh, we're trying to react to the constituents. It was if you read between the lines, he was basically saying we're going to get to we're going to get to a compromise. But in the meantime, you and the media shouldn't do that. And, and my response to him was was I didn't I didn't introduce the legislation. How am I being the one that's being divisive? Uh, but, but that speaks to what Donna was saying. But I, I have an interesting question for for Greg along this is all of this probably needs to pass this year, right, Greg? Because I know we can roll we can roll bills over into next year, but next year is an election year. So if they're going to do voting reforms, they probably want to go ahead and get them in place now. Yeah, they want to get them in place this year uh, in time for the municipal elections at the end of November. Uh, elections officials will, will, will 
rightly if if these are held over till next year. Also, um, you need to build build in some sort of schedule for elections officials to actually impose uh, and start enacting um, some of these changes. And and really remember too, some of these proposals also um, seek to change the, gui the the guidelines for uh, runoffs and the timelines um, for for uh, how how you. Uh, find an outright primary winner and things like that. Um, so that could change things as well for next year. Greg, uh, the uh, the Democrats in Georgia's House, U.S. House delegation, sent a letter to Speaker of the House David Ralston and uh, Senate Majority Leader Mike Dugan the other day. All, all of them signed off on it, all six of them. Among other things, they say, quote, this is blatant voter suppression, 2020 showed the largest voter turnout ever for Georgia, with minority groups making up a larger share of the state's electorate than ever before. It's critically important uh, that our democracy, uh, which has been threatened by the events of January 6th, uh, must ensure that people of Georgia have faith in our elections. Exceptional voter turnout should be celebrated, not discouraged. This is an entirely, Greg, entirely partisan issue. You do not have people coming together, even in small numbers, on both sides of the aisle, supporting virtually any of these measures. Yeah, this is a, this is the most divisive issue, maybe other than the transgender sports issue in the state capitol right now. Um, and uh, you know, it's hurtling towards some sort of conclusion. One of the um, Republicans who who I often text back and forth with on background uh, last night texted me. Uh, and he's he's in opposition to this, but texted me. This is there's going to be Exhibit One A in Congress for why federal lawmakers should pass some sort of voting overhaul to preempt a lot of these changes in states like Georgia and others with the history of racial discrimination. Yeah, and we know the U.S. House has HB One, which is a major overhaul of uh, of voter rights and responsibilities uh, that's now sitting in the House probably not really going to pass. It's it's very likely more an expression of Democrats' belief about how elections should be run, but it does exist, and we'll watch as it moves forward in Washington. Let's do this. Let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back with a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. I'm joined by a panel of outstanding Georgia journalists for today's Political Rewind. GPB-TV lawmakers host Donna Lowry, uh, AJC political reporter Greg Bluestein, uh, president and CEO of Mundo Hispanico Digital, Renee Alegria, and the editorial page editor of Savannah Morning News, Adam Van Brimmer. Before we get off the uh, legislature entirely and move to other political matters, um, Donna, I just these are two smaller measures, but I'm interested in what they tell us about Republicans in the legislature, in addition to just the bills themselves. Um, one of them is that Rep um, Representative Houston Gaines is pushing a bill that would block 
local municipalities from decreasing budgets to their police forces by more than 5%. There would be a penalty for cities that decided to do that. A, a response, of course, Donna, to what many people think is the Black Lives Matter-initiated uh, effort to rethink policing, in some cases defund uh, policing in this country, yes? Absolutely, and I, I will announce now that he will be on the show tonight, so you can tune in because we're definitely going to be talking go. with him a little bit about it. So got that plug in. Yeah, it, it, this is definitely a response to the, to the whole defund the police movement and over-policing. But, you know, he's from the Athens-Clark County area, and there, the one, there was a, uh, an incident, I think, in Greene County, I believe. I'm, I don't know. Greg, you may know this better than I do, where um, there was a, um, a, a commission, uh, a, a county commission that actually pulled away, um, uh, actually let their police department go, basically, stopped funding their police department. The sheriff's department had to take over. So there, there have been, you know, that's at least one instance in Georgia where we've seen somebody, um, so, uh, some municipality try to make some difference in all of this in terms of having control over the police department. Um, Gaines, I think, is only, you know, 5% isn't much, but it is showing that there is a, um, an interest in possibly making some changes in this area. It also, the other side of it, though, is also that people are, um, are feeling that they, this, is, this is too much, that, it, you know, we, especially Republicans, and, and Gaines is a Republican, is, but focuses so much on local control, and this would take away some local control. And, of course, you had the municipalities pushing back on this. Yeah, I, I, uh, Renee, know, that – go ahead. Renee. Sure. Yeah, no, listen, I, I, I do think that uh, there, the, the mistrust that communities have with certain aspects of uh, police departments across the state, certainly across the country right now, is at an all-time high. I mean, we, we all saw what happened, say, at the – at the Capitol, you know, where you actually saw uh, some police folks just, you know, let let folks in, presumably, right, allegedly. Um, and I think that 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 mood, that environment, is certainly spilling into our local political discussions, funding, etc., and the perception of what is right, what is real, what is not. Um, obviously, from the from the Hispanic perspective, we we really. Uh, look to our uh, police force to to take care of us, right? And that has just not been the case traditionally. Um, so there is that mistrust, and I do think that when you when 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 we read about what is happening, you know, five percent whatnot, we look at it as just a pure political ploy. And what what does that do really to the average uh, Georgian? Um, we don't think much. Greg. Yeah, look, this is tapping into um, the overall Republican messaging. We heard a lot of through 2020, 2020 of defunding the police, even though it was not really an issue in, in states like Georgia, uh, where it might have been an issue in Oregon and in some you know more progressive-led states. It just wasn't um, this major issue. But I was I, I was meeting up with a staffer for former Senator Purdue yesterday who was just marveling about how effective that argument it was against John Ossoff for a while because there was one interview where, where Ossoff um, seemed to somewhat defend 
defunding police. And then he quickly walked back his comments in interviews with me and other outlets. Um, but they relentlessly pummeled him over that one phrase he gave on one interview in June of 2020 uh, to, to great effect, you know, um, because it helps galvanize conservative supporters who see this over and over again on Fox News and, and other um, uh, conservative media outlets, even though there is no substantial effort to defund the police. Um, you know, what, what Donna was talking about, was there, there are some smaller police departments that in, in smaller towns that we swallowed up by sheriff's departments because, you know, the local taxing issues and local jurisdictional issues. Uh, but there's been no movement, especially in rural Georgia, um, to, to eliminate um, law enforcement officers and things like that. Um, Adam, it, that bill and another one, uh, the House has now approved a bill that would lo- would limit how cities can place mandates on the kind of energy that would go into construction, pro- into buildings. Um, so you couldn't uh, maybe uh, create an all green uh, building and get LEED certification. Um, it would it would insist that uh, th- that strict zoning measures could not be enforced. And that's an interesting bill in and of itself. But combining that with the defunding of the police measure, uh, I guess it makes it clearer than ever to us that uh, Republicans as much as that this notion that Republicans uh, believe in local control, uh, not not state or federal control, just is no longer operative, and they are as concerned about state authority as Democrats have always been. They embrace it at their convenience, right? I mean, that's really what this is. Is it's 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 totally it's total hypocrisy. We go back. Uh, Greg might correct me. I think it was two years ago where they passed the the monuments law and basically took the power away from local municipalities or denied them the ability to claw back the power to, to move monuments. Uh, they said it wasn't about Confederate monuments. That was obviously clearly about Confederate monuments. And that's really that's that's the the linchpin with the state legislature right now is they feel like they can control whatever they feel like they want to control. And there's a certain amount of give and take that should be there between local governments and state government. But I think the line is, is blurrier now than it has ever been. And uh, yeah, I don't think the Republicans can, I think there any Republican that talks about limited government anymore. You know, you kind of, it's hard not to roll your eyes. Okay. Well, we'll be interested, Donna, in seeing what Houston Gaines says about why this measure for uh, 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 penalizing cities that defund their police departments by more or reduce funding by more than 5%, what his rationale is. And it will be on Lawmakers tonight at 7 o'clock on Georgia Public Broadcasting Statewide TV Network. All right, Houston, we've held off long long enough. David Perdue is not going to run (laughs) for Raphael Warnock's seat in the United States Senate next year. But Kelly Leffler has now launched an effort that really looks as if she may be headed in the direction of a rematch with Warnock. Talk to us about all of this. Yeah, so Purdue's decision, the big the big impact of it is that he had frozen the field, even by flirting with running. Um, and that no other Republicans no other prominent Republicans could get in the race while he was still deliberating, much like what happened two years ago with Stacey Abrams or last year, with Stacey Abrams uh, ruminating about a, a U.S. Senate run. Um, you know, if you re- remember, Teresa Tomlinson ended up finally getting um, frustrated and saying, I will run if she doesn't. You know, in this case, 
David Perdue made his decision fairly, you know, a lot quicker than a lot of people thought, just after eight days, saying he's not running, freeing, freeing right open that door for other people to run. Kelly Leffler is right in there. Um, she has not made up her mind yet. She told me on Monday that she's she's considering it. The biggest question she faces is what makes next year's run any different than last year's run when she was pulled increasingly to the right by Doug Collins. She had to face questions over her loyalty to President Trump. Um, and she, in her words and in Governor Kemp's words, she was never able to run the campaign she wanted to run. Well, if she runs again in next year, um, she might face the same concerns. Um, President Trump still looms over this race, and um, she'll be probably challenged by someone like D Doug Collins or someone else who would pull her to the right. Her answer to this is this group called Greater Georgia. Um, she feels like whether she runs or not, it will change the dynamic for Republican politics in Georgia because it does what Stacey Abrams' group has done so effectively since 2018, which is registering, uh, mobilizing hundreds of thousands of, of in their conservative-leaning voters, um, advocating for policies, building a grassroots network, and pushing for some of these uh, voting measures that Democrats see as so restrictive uh, in the Georgia Capitol. So she feels like that could be the game changer that A, raises her profile, but B, also helps Republicans across the state. All right. So this sets up what could be fascinating uh, uh, race uh, in the Republican primary for next year, leading up to the reelection campaign that Raphael Warnock will uh, run. Let's do this. Let's get our final break of the show out of the way and then talk a little bit more about the dynamics of what we expect could develop in the year ahead for that U.S. Senate seat. Uh, before we continue with today's conversation, a quick program note. As I mentioned uh, earlier in the show, tomorrow we're going to talk about uh, the state's uh, schools and uh, the controversy over whether they should be open, whether they shouldn't be. Adam Van Brimmer's kids went back to school in Savannah uh, today, but there are still so many questions about how safe or unsafe it is for our kids to be in school, what are the detrimental effects of their doing distance learning, and we're going to talk about that on the show. We'll be led in our conversation uh, by Greg's colleague at the AJC, Maureen Downey, who's a, a longtime uh, education writer uh, for the paper. Greg, your kids have gone through both, right? Adam, we talk about Adam Van Brimmer, but your kids have been doing, I think, virtual and in person. Is that right? I wish. Uh, my, my kid in DeKalb County Schools is still virtual. She came down to bother me. Wednesdays, they actually have days off, so I don't know why. Um, so she's just running around <laughs> upstairs as we speak. And then we pulled our first grader out. Um, I never thought I'd ever have to send a, I'm a public school guy. My wife is a public school gal. Both of our parents are public school teachers, both of our mothers. Um, but, uh, my first grader couldn't do it anymore. So we, we, she now goes to a private school down the road. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think DeKalb is going to go to in-person uh, uh, schooling uh, starting uh, maybe as soon as next week. Donna Lowry, you've been an educator. Your whole career was built around your expertise in education. Absolutely. Uh, I think DeKalb's announced they're going to start in-person classes again, right? Yeah, they are. And they, they've been the real holdout, like where you've had some counties start and stop and that kind of thing or do the um, the, 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 the uh, hybrid of a little uh, DeKalb has been, nobody's been going back. And so I think they're feeling uh, that it's about time to do that. And that'll be really strange. Imagine these kids have not been 
in school for almost a year now, and they're going to re be returning to the classroom. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how that will work out. And then there's, you know, they're, they're, everybody is worried about this learning loss that these students have uh, uh, have right at this point. So um, it'll be, uh, we, we'll, we'll have to wait and see how they're going to be able to deal with that, whether they're, we're going to see uh, maybe the kids going to school all summer. We'll all right, well, we will happens. be talking we will be talking about that uh, tomorrow on Political Rewind and hope you can all join in. I mean, one other quick note. We did a show yesterday uh, on the one year, marking the one year anniversary of the sad death of Ahmad Arbery and talked a lot about what's happening with racial justice in the state and in the country since then. Uh, if you follow either me or Political Rewind on Twitter, which, by the way, you can do, you can join us on Twitter by going to at politics GPB or you can follow me at Nigut B, N-I-G-U-T-B. I posted this morning um, uh, a tweet about a show that Netflix has put up right now. Um, our good friend Kenny Leon is one of the directors of a series called Amend, and it tells the history of the 14th Amendment, which many people are not really aware of, and what a powerful force it's been uh, for good, but also troubles that it's encountered in trying to establish racial justice in this country. And I really suggest, uh, if you're interested in shows like we did yesterday, check out Amend on uh, Netflix. All right, Renee Alegria, back to the uh, topic at hand. I think the people who are anticipating the potential for a rematch between Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins next year, I mean, mostly I think Republicans are fear, afraid of it. it, it we know how uh, the, the impact it had uh, last year in terms of uh, hurting Kelly Loeffler when she eventually won. But for political junkies, come on, how much better does it get than that potential? <laughs> it, it's like WrestleMania won, right? Um, talk about a battle royal. I, that everybody can't wait to see what happens, what Collins will say, how he will pos position, what uh, the right it, you know, <clears throat> outflanks Leffler, et cetera. I mean, it's going to be it's going to be a dance to see what happens. Um, but getting back to Purdue, you know, I, ju I just couldn't help but but think as we were all talking about how how just tired he looked there toward the end. You know, the entire process was so <laughs> exhausting. Right. I mean, we, we were all of us were tired there. Jan Forrest, you know, I mean, we all couldn't wait for it to, to be over in some in some respect. And here you have uh, uh, an executive who, you know, rather white glove really wasn't out there like, you know, so like a Warnock say, who's just like man of the people, like flourishes in, in that type of spotlight. Um, and, it, you know, it's no surprise that Bluestein called it the way he did. He's right on. Uh, and to me, it's just, you know, watching someone like Purdue navigate the, the minefield of what contemporary Georgia politics is becoming um, is really interesting. You know, I mean, you, the increased diversity of the state um, means it's a different type of state. You run a different type of campaign that a lot of, say, that – older guard just doesn't really understand, right? Um, you do have players like the, the rise of the Hispanic voter, the rise of the Asian voter, you know, the, the millennial, and frankly, the, the influence that Gen Z has with uh, pushing their parents to vote here or there, right, is, is something that I don't think um, a lot of politicians in the traditional 
sense are, are, are really understanding how to do correctly. Uh, so it's, it's no surprise. I, I, it is going to be interesting what, what type of, of campaign uh, Leffler starts to build. Um, but it's definitely not your, uh, you know, mama's Georgia anymore. Um, yeah, Adam, I think in all fairness to Purdue, we should point out he did have COVID-19, uh, so it, he probably was looking a lot more tired uh, than he might normally be. But but I think, uh, nevertheless, Renee makes a good point. Uh, running for election, Adam, you know, there, there used to be a real genuine public service component uh, to being an elected official in Congress. And, I, and certainly there are those who still run because they do believe in the issues they'd like to try to see passed by Congress. But the partisan gridlock in Washington is such that there are any number of people who are choosing not to run at all or certainly not to run again, as perhaps David Perdue has decided, not just in this case, but maybe to go back to a private career where he can be much more successful in, in uh, the corporate sector. Yeah, I think you might be giving David Perdue a little bit too much credit there. I don't see him as necessarily a, a major major man of the people, as Renee said. <clears throat> no, I don't want to psychoanalyze and figure out why he, why he ran or why he didn't run or why he ran the way he did in December. But it certainly, as you look ahead to 2022 and and who is going to run and, and, you know, the whole idea of Leffler and Collins just basically gives me a splitting headache even with even at the mention of it because it, it, somebody was talking about Leffler's campaign earlier. As bad as Purdue's campaign was this last time, Leffler's was worse. Leffler's was god-awful. Now, can she actually decide to stand on her own two feet in 2022 and, and actually send a message that actually send a message? Let's just leave it at that. Uh, we'll wait and see. But if, if we're looking at Leffler and Collins from 2020 again, I, I, I know it's a gubernatorial year. I know the, the Republicans are going to be out and forced to vote, uh, vote for governor, and, and that should help the senator. But I really – I don't see – I find it very, very challenging to think that Leffler and Collins, depending, especially how they ran last year, will be able to mount any more of a fight against Warnock than they did a year ago. Greg, am I jumping the gun to think that there might be a rematch between the two of them? No, I think it's fair to say because both of them have told the AJC that they're thinking about running, seriously thinking about running, and, and people around them back that up. So I don't, I don't put them in the same category as I put Senator Perdue in. I still think it's unlikely, but the fascinating part that, that both of them will run, I think there's a good chance one of them might run. Um, but the fascinating thing about this is David Perdue is the only one who could clear the field, maybe short of his cousin, Sonny mm -hmm. Perdue, deciding to run. Um, so even if Kelly Leffler and Doug Collins both get into this race, I don't think it will scare off other Republicans for doing so as well. I, and I published a lengthy list of, of potential contenders, and I've reached out to every single one of them in some form or fashion um, before I included them on the list. Um, but there are some other names out there that could be really intriguing. Jeff Duncan is one of them um, who is has not ruled it out. He, he's been talking about a GOP 2.0. He's kind of trying to find the lane of mainstream conservative who's not a pro-Trumper, who supported Trump but is not you know, hewing to, to Trump, Trumpism. Um, Chris Carr is out there. Um, former chief, or soon to be former Chief Justice Harold Melton um, is being bandied about a lot. He he is not quite there yet, but um, but he hasn't ruled it out yet either. Uh, and then there's some other names like Herschel Walker, like Kelvin King, um, 
who are being promoted out there. I know the folks are laughing, but there are serious talks in, among Republican circles that Herschel Walker uh, could be at least thinking about this run. Uh, we have we have not been able to reach him directly yet. I've had our sports reporters on it <laughs> because I don't have a cell. Um, but like you know, don't don't be surprised. I know conservative media has already started to rev up talk about Herschel Walker running. Um, and you know, look, this is all going to be about who ends up coming in with Trump's blessing, or if Trump stays on the sidelines, like we know he probably won't on the governor's race, which is a whole different story. Uh, but he's already promised to to endorse a challenger to to Governor Kemp. What he does in the Senate race will be a huge factor in the Republican primary. Meanwhile, Donna Raphael Warnock has responded to this by essentially saying, bring it on. I'm ready yeah. for whoever comes after me. Yeah, I think I think he feels real confident about things. He he um, he is working in Washington and boy, sending out press releases like crazy from uh, his campaign about all the things that he's doing. Uh, I think there's the feeling that there was a lot of uh, momentum with his campaign that will continue. And if he can continue to um, can keep that that energy alive, that he has a pretty good chance with all of this. Um, people are still talking about how well he did in terms of positioning himself with his ads and and the way he was able to make things move on um, to to actually be voted in. So I, I think he's he's ready for this and, uh, and and is feeling energized. And so are the people who have supported him. So I think that that's a big part of it. Meanwhile, Renee, to bring this all back full circle to where we started, the election bills in the state legislature, what Georgia legislators passed and the governor signs this year in terms of changing voting laws could have an enormous impact on what happens not only in that Senate race, but as long as we're talking about it, how things turn out for the voters that Raphael Warnock is able to bring to the polls. Uh, agreed. I, you know, again, I, I always I talk about the, the little hurdles that create, you know, the, the giant barrier of individuals from not voting to voting. Uh, what is very clear at, in, in our world in the state is that the policies that affect the Hispanic community affect the future of Georgia, the Hispanic community being integral to the future of Georgia. Uh, Renee Alegria, you get the last word on today's Political Rewind. Thank you so much uh, for joining us. Don Lowry, see you tonight at 7 for Lawmakers on GPB-TV. Adam Van Brimmer, thank you for being here. Um, we look forward to reading you in the Savannah Morning News or online at Savannah Now. And Greg Bluestein, thank you for being with us. We look forward to seeing you again on our show next week. In the meantime, we're out of time. As I said, tomorrow we talk about education in Georgia, how it's been affected by the coronavirus. Um, I am Bill Nygut. I'll see you tomorrow. But in the meantime, take care, stay healthy, wear a mask. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>